I was planning on ending with Flamio Hotman. Yes, Flamio. What? Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 36 of the Superhero FX Podcast. My name is Matthew. I'm one of your hosts. And I'm really excited this week because actually both of our hosts, Jacob and Paul, are both here with us today. Um, so, Jacob, Paul, how are you guys doing today? Not the worst. The The land's not on fire anymore, <laughs> and the smoke is clear, so that's good. Paul, good to hear from you again. Glad you're back. I'm just really glad that uh, Paul was the one to talk first because I was just going to be sitting here waiting for him forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think given the I topic— I want to work on that whole— Doing thing. There we go. Given the topic that we have, I think that's going to be the last time uh, I have trouble getting either of you to talk. Because um, we're talking today about a subject that I honestly don't know very much about, but which I know both Paul and Jacob um, are real experts in and are really excited to dive into, uh, which is the TV show Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, I want to be clear, we're talking about the TV show, the animated series, not the film, um, although I'm sure we're going to have a couple of things to say about um, the quality of the film. Um, but um, we're talking about the TV show. And I want to mention from the beginning, we're going to be uh, definitely talking about the whole run of that show, um, at least the whole run of Avatar The Last Airbender. So there will be spoilers for that. We're going to try and avoid spoilers for Legend of Korra, because not all three of us are at the same place with that. Um, but at least for Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, that one we're going to dive into in pretty good depth. So let me just start, guys. What do you love so much about the show? What what gets you so excited about it? And why are you so interested in talking about it? So for me, uh, one of the things that immediately hooked me to the show um, and this will give everyone an idea of exactly how much of a stereotype I am, was its portrayal of, of martial arts. Uh, I've studied a, a number of them growing up. It was sort of an outlet for me and also just a way that I could use to, to improve myself physically uh, in what to me was a very, very positive environment. And to see the kinds of things that, that I was learning, that I was, that I was practicing and doing, portrayed so accurately, move for move, point for point, in this really rich, mystical world was just, it was a delight. I loved it. I, I really uh, loved the same thing about it as well. Um, although I'd say that it not only captures a lot of the good things in martial arts culture and, you know, the martial arts themselves and the techniques, but, um, you know, a lot of the good things like introspection and learning how not to abuse one's power. Uh, but it also captures a lot of the bad things like the abuse of power by some masters, um, such as, you know, Fire Lord Ozai. And um, I think it kind of showing that balance is one of the things that I really liked. And um, that kind of takes us into something else that I really think is just outstanding about this show is the just the characterization you know the mm. depth that characters are presented in and um that i mean we're gonna get into that a little bit more later in terms of specific characters but like it's hard for me to pick my favorite character you know and that's usually a sign of either a really good show or a really bad show i i have to say that's really fascinating to me because as someone who doesn't you know i i i, I didn't i i'll be honest i watched a couple of episodes i couldn't really get into it in part because it felt like a kid's show to me um and i had trouble with animation I recently, at, at Paul's urging and some others, gotten into the Clone Wars and, and decided, because of how much I enjoy that, to give Avatar another chance, uh, which I'm excited to do, especially after this conversation. But one of my first thoughts was, and again, this might be my bias, but I, I tend to think of, of kids' shows or animated shows like that as, as being a little bit more simplistic, that things are going to be a little more black and white. Um, so that's not the case here in Avatar? Well, to be fair, it does start out... It, it presents itself as if it were a children's show and it is 
ostensibly a children's show. Uh, so when you're first presented the material, it doesn't actually, it, it, it doesn't betray the fact that all of these characters have that level of depth. They, they do seem as though maybe it's going to be, you know, your standard, here's the foils for the main character, here's the comic foil, here's the main protagonist, here's their faithful sidekick, etc. Uh, but as the series progresses, it becomes very clear as we encounter more characters and as we encounter reasonable and, and realistic motivations behind those characters that even though it's still aimed at at a younger audience there's plenty of depth there and plenty of things for people who are more mature to enjoy yeah i'd agree and i'd say a, a particularly striking example for me is prince zuko who is cast as the primary antagonist through much of season one uh, and especially in those first few episodes he's you know this kind of he comes off as just a, a generic, like, angry teenager, you know, who's like, I must catch the protagonists, like, because it's what I'm supposed to do, right? And then he has this uncle who, in the beginning, feels like this very kind of generic, wise old dude, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, but the dynamic between those two characters, I mean, it stays, like, all of that is still, is part of who those characters are, right? But it just, it evolves and it, you get a lot more detail and you understand why the uncle is sort of playing the role he's playing to the prince, why the prince is the way he is. And um, so it, it comes out of these kind of stereotypical character archetypes and then it really develops them as people. And I'd say the show does that with a lot of the, the characters. Right. So I can understand how in the beginning it's a little harder to get into, especially mm -hmm. if you're thinking, oh, it's just like a kid's show. And it is very silly a lot of the times. Um, but it really does um, a great job of developing. Where this really shines, where this really comes out, is in characters that we are introduced to for the first time later in the show that mm -hmm. could be set up as just sort of one shot, no real depth to them, no backstory, nothing that makes sense, and that's not what we get. Right? There's an opportunity for them to take that kind of lazy approach uh, and say, this is, you know, these people are rebelling. And in doing these things, they're they're being destructive to the environment around them because they're just a bunch of troubled kids who have made their own kind of band. They're, they're basically the Lost Boys. Insert the Lost Boys from Peter mm -hmm. Pan. That's who these guys are. But instead, uh, we get Jet and his and his gang. And it's they actually have very each of them, even the ones that barely talk, have a reasonable backstory and. I mean, it sounds like one of the things that the show is really good at is world building. I mean, I, I know it obviously is set in a world that is – you can sort of draw some analogies to our own, but it's for the most part a completely unique world. Um, and, and from what I'm, my understanding, both in talking to you guys and, and, and talking to others, is that the show really does a great job in, in making it not only a, a rich and a full world, but a very consistent world and one where it seems like the, the actions of the characters are affecting things around them. I would say yeah. it does that. Um like one thing just for this show to me is I feel like, especially since it was three seasons, it was clearly always supposed to be three seasons and they were very successful and they still just did three seasons. Mm. It was clear to me that they had a map for the story they wanted to tell and they just went out and told that story. Yeah. And the only deviations uh, I think they might've made had to do with a certain voice actor passing oh. away. Yeah, uh, because there were definitely scenes where I feel like the character would have been talking and wasn't while they were finding somebody to replace them. Uh, yeah, 
Sorry, didn't mean to make you sad. Uh, everybody, okay. everybody who's seen the show or knew of Mako before the yeah. show, that's that's something that we we all share that pain. Uh, right, he yeah. was a asset to the show. And, that, and that's something we've talked about before, especially Jacob, you and I with Babylon 5 and, and with some other shows that – there's such a value in in shows knowing where they're going from the beginning. I mean, I, and that a lot of things I think we're often most critical of, story wise at least, um, are the are the shows where the, or the, um, it, it seems like you know they set up a question in season one and they have no idea how they're going to answer it, and so the, the consistency just isn't there. <laughs> Lost. <laughs> I love how we went for the exact same gag with two different yeah. shows. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, so I heard Paul. Paul's was lost. What was yours, Jacob? Battlestar Galactica, the new yeah. BSG. I, the writers' strike, I think, had some to do with that. Same with Lost, but uh, yeah, okay, sure. Know. So and Heroes, and you know, <laughs> the writers' strike was bad for for continuity <laughs> for television, television. Yeah. as well. It should have been, yeah, of course, part of definitely, point. definitely. Got to make it work. Anyway, that <laughs> has nothing to do with the Last Airbender. Yep. Well, so, so let's true. let's dive a little bit more into this. So, um. I know one of the first topics that we really want to talk about was the character. And tell me if I get the pronunciation right. Ang, is that Aang. right? Ang. Okay. Um, so what's going on with this character? What 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 makes this character so interesting to you guys, especially in terms of like the the ethical questions we're talking about? So Ang is the titular character uh, in in I believe it was in Canada. Uh, it was subtitled Legend of Ang rather than The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is. It's his story. Yeah. Uh, right. Ang I mean, is, he's also the, the last Airbender. In right. The story. Mm-hmm. He, he is literally the last of yeah. his people uh, of his of his uh, lineage, um, as it were. And so he's in this very unique spot, this very unique place. And there are affectations to this character that that are very interesting. Like, for example, he he speaks with a his his voice has an affectation to it that's a little bit abnormal. Um, I don't want to call it a lisp because it's not quite a lisp. You know what I'm talking about, Paul, when, when I'm talking about Aang's voice? I do, kind of. I mean, he sounds like... I mean, the thing about the character is, you know, when he was 12, he found out that he's this, like, super important person or whatever. And it was a ton of responsibility for him, and he freaked out. And he ended up getting frozen in ice for 100 years, as, you know, people do. like <laughs> Right. That's, that's what you do. You... You pack up your stuff and you run away from your problems. That's right, right. And then you get frozen in ice. Yeah. And, like, so, he, I mean, he is a character that's very much out of his time, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I, I, I do know what you mean about the voice. Um, I guess I, I wouldn't really know how to pinpoint it either, but he he does both his voice and the character himself, the way he acts, his outlook on the world, um, feel like they're very much removed from the present situation in that world, mm. right? He's you know? been gone. A, he's been gone a hundred years. As as a context for the people who don't know the show, he's been gone a hundred years, and in that time, a nation of peoples that he he had friends there, mm-hmm. right? Um, just uh, got to this point where they um, started waging war against all of the other nations, invading and, and conquering. Uh, in in an effort to effectively unify the world, mm-hmm. um, which we've heard that story before, right? But, and they but, killed all of his people, just like right. You know, and also, by the way, Ang, none of your none of your ancestors exist because yeah. they were all slaughtered by by this nation. So he comes out of his his little ice shell and learns of this, and yeah. Uh, but but the thing we wanted to talk about specifically about Ang because it's a an, a character trait we don't see very often, even when we should, <clears throat> Iron Fist, 
uh, is, that, is that Aang is a vegetarian. Mm. So, yeah. Well, go on. Oh no. Um, well, just like yeah, that's there's not there's not a lot of vegetarians in fiction. Like right. you know, there's a, there's a lot of times a character is. I guess, um, indeterminate in terms of their diet, right? There are plenty of characters in fiction that we don't really see eating. Um, but you know, there aren't a lot of characters where it's like, yes, this character is a vegetarian. And a lot of the times on something like iron fist, right. Where the characters supposed to be a vegetarian or he was like raised vegetarian. He's like, but we snuck off and ate donkeys, you know? And it's like played for laughs basically. Right, um, and you're talking in the TV show Iron Fist because in the comic book right. he, he he is just a vegetarian across the board. That was one of the things they changed for the TV show. For right. for the the Netflix TV show, there's a there's right. something um, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man I think, which is an animated series, which uh-huh. I actually feel like has a much better Iron Fist. Oh really? And, <laughs> Wouldn't yeah. be hard. Right, right, exactly. It's got Iron Fist, Luke Cage, uh, and you know a couple other people, and, and Spider-Man, and. You know, but like as teenagers, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm a vegetarian. I think he's actually vegan or whatever." But like, right. you know, the, it it fits more with his character, you know. And the, I mean, I actually feel like not being a vegetarian fits with the Danny Rand in the Netflix show. Yeah, and his way. actual characterization. Yeah, right. Um, and you know, but it it seems to me like a little. I don't know. It's like, why would you make that choice? You right. know, as as a as a filmmaker, um, I mean, it's interesting. Like Luke Cage has a vegetarian sort of. Um, yeah, the the, the, never, the cop, the, the he's, a, cop. he's a vegan, the, I think. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think he mentions it, but just he's like, no, I don't eat that, you know. And it's like yeah. that's it. And they don't ever even say vegetarian, I don't think. But like, it's just like, you know, it's like yeah, like a it's just an interesting decent, bit of world building in, in Luke Cage. Right. Exactly. It's just a, a you know something about a character, right? Okay. Um, Getting back to Aang specifically, Um, so one of the things that is is interesting about this portrayal is that it obviously where we're talking about it, we're we're talking about vegetarians in in media and fiction at some length here, uh, so makes people think that, okay, they obviously make a very big deal out of this. But interestingly, I would argue they don't make a big deal out of it. The the show writers call it out in certain spots by having Aang say, I don't eat meat when he's off. And the fact that every character's reaction is like the the most quote judgmental unquote reaction you get from somebody is they shrug, right? Right, right, yeah. Mm. Like right. Sokka, who's the most like virulent meat eater. You know, he's like, oh, more for me. You know, <laughs> they, they <laughs> like... yeah, they they actually play up. I feel Sokka's uh, carnivorous tendencies in order to contrast with with Aang better, in order to show that like they're not passing judgment mm-hmm. on either of these these choices, but they do make it very clear that this is a part, this is a central part of Aang that he's not willing to compromise. Well, to me, that's fascinating because it sounds like, it sounds like what they've done is to make this a part of the character, but also, first of all, not to play it for laughs, which I think is one of the most obvious things you could do with this. And also not to make it one note, you know? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it's interesting, this question of are they making a big deal of it or not? It seems like it's such a cliche, but it's like they're making a big deal out of not making a big deal of it because... That's clearly a very my, – my understanding at least is that that seems like it's a very conscious choice to say we're going to introduce this concept into the world but not either play it as strident, hit you over the head with it or play it for laughs. We're just going to – we're kind of normalizing this topic by saying this is a part of this character and this is who he is um, 
but but it's accepted, even if it's not everyone is on the same same page with it. Yeah, and I, I think when it comes to representation and fiction, that's one of the two things like you need to do. You know, right. um, I think it's a great thing to do is to basically just take some characteristic that a person could have, whether it's a choice or some, you know, however they were born or, or something, you know, that they acquired through their life and just be like, yeah, this character, you know, that's just part of that character and not make a big deal out of it, but like have it clearly be um, an essential part of that character, right? right? It's not the defining characteristic of like Aang being a vegetarian isn't, his single defining characteristic, but it is a defining characteristic. It it influences who he is, but it's not um, like an overwhelming characteristic. And right. I think, you know, the other thing is like, you can also have some stories that do tackle um, th those sorts of things. Um, you know, whatever people of with certain, certain aspects, identities, whatever, um, encounter, like, I think it's important that there is fiction that tackles those issues. Right. Mm -hmm. But Every time you have a character with some quality like that, you don't always have to have that be the story, right? And just including characters um, with whatever qualities um, in a kind of just casual, like, yeah, you know, he's a vegetarian. And right. I it's, think is, is helpful. There's, there's multiples of this, this same kind of idea uh, in characters in the show, even. Mm -hmm. uh, multiple instances where a character has something about themselves that is is clearly uh, integral to who they are. It's, it's an integral part of who they are, but it's not made the focus of any major plot points. It's not, it's not effective. I guess the way I want to say this is it's not abused for the sake of story, right? right? There's never a point where Aang's all like, I'm starving to death and there is nary a vegetable to be found. There's nothing right. like that happening, right? Yeah. He's never for, uh, he's never faced with some sort of moral conflict where like he has to eat meat right. to prevent his friends or, getting or hurt he or dies something stupid or, like that. Oh right, 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 yep, right. That would be so contrived and stupid, but yes, thankfully that doesn't happen. Yeah, and, and and I mean it's sad to say this, but I'm surprised to hear that because it feels like that is such an easy trope that writers go to of saying, I, I, if we create a, a character who has this very strong moral precept, we're mm -hmm. at some point going to create a situation where artificially that character has to decide. Is that moral precept more important than some other thing? And here I want to give the writer some I credit because I, I feel like with the character of Aang, uh, one of the things they wanted to do with his vegetarianism is is kind of make a statement to children watching the show being like, this is okay. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with this. You're not going to be put in some situation where this is a disadvantage. This is right. just a valid life decision. Yeah, they do. And I, I think that's great. Um, and there is one so he, he kind of has an instance that's like that, that um, isn't that way about him being a vegetarian. But, um, spoiler alert, at the end of the show... <laughs> oh, you know, about his pacifism, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. He, he's a vegetarian, like, not just like, uh, you know, I like animals, they're my friends. Like, his best friend is a flying sky bison, right? Right. Like, so he does have this connection to animals. Um, but it's also like a, you know, do no harm, like don't do not kill, like don't harm right. others. And, yeah. you know, so he ha he's faced with this quandary of like, everybody's like, yeah, you need to go kill the big bad. Right. And he's like, but I don't want to kill him. So, you know, he does have that moment of kind of like looking for another way. But it's not like in order to like eat today, it's like in order to save the world. So it's like it, f it feels less contrived than if they mm -hmm. had a little story that was about like, oh, they're starving and, you know. You know, right. will they eat 
Appa, like... He literally has that problem because the central plot of the entire show is let's stop the Fire Nation from conquering all these other people. Right. And in order to do that, you have to de- depose their their ruler. And everyone's going into this by the end of it, assuming that Aang's just going to take him out, going going to kill him and it'll all be better. And Aang's terrified by this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, is, he has problems with this. Um, and I actually feel the way the, the show ultimately resolved that Oh, I know a lot of people thought uh, initially it was kind of a cop out. I really liked it. I, I really liked it too. It was very, it was a very spiritual way. It was very, it was very much in line with Aang's character mm-hmm. that he he meditated, he he fussed, yeah. and he he tortured himself over how do I solve this problem, and then makes a connection with this this ancient uh creature of, sea of, yeah this <laughs> the, the lion turtles yeah right. these, yeah, these yeah. creatures that are uh almost timeless uh, mm-hmm. that's going to to Korra, but uh right. where we learn that the the lion turtles have been around for for eons and eons but uh and gave the people bending right mm-hmm. he finds one of these and uh makes a connection with that and finds mm-hmm. another way uh, that is in line with his own moral principles, so he doesn't have to betray himself in order to solve these problems. I, I just, I thought it was beautiful. I did too. I just felt like it really fit the series and was like it. It kind of brought it around and let it be itself, you know, um, without kind of forcing a like, okay, now it's time to grow up and kill people, you know. Right. Like and, I, I think yeah, that would have yeah, felt yeah. kind of unnatural in in this series. In, in that specifically, that that specific point is one of the reasons I loved it so much. Is that mm-hmm. uh, I've seen that trope where, you know, you gotta bite the bullet and do this thing that makes you uncomfortable because that's the mature thing to do, and to have somebody to have a series come around and and end with the lesson of, you can find a peaceful resolution even to this incredibly difficult problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is going to sound like a weird connection, but I, I was thinking about the same topic recently because I just reread the Harry Potter books. Um, mm, yeah. And I love those books on so many levels and some, some ways they're problems. But one thing I always thought was a little weird is, you know, Dumbledore makes such pains to tell Harry, like, the prophecy about you and Voldemort. Um, you know, it, 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 it's only prophecy. It, it, it only has to come true because you think it has to come true and all of this kind of stuff. But yet, but yet also, but you've got to kill Voldemort. And there's never any discussion of there being another alternative, right. um, especially because at, at one point we learned that the the other sort of awful, terrible, dark wizard, um, Grindelwald, um, has been imprisoned this whole time. Um, right. And, 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 and not to go too Who I think is the secret hero in the stories, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> That's a very I weird... can't wait to hear that story, but <laughs> for that's a for another times, time. But yes, but but yeah, but I think that that's um, I, I remember being a little disappointed by those books, and I really like this idea because um, it, it's the same reason we talked a while ago, uh, Paul and I, about Doctor Strange, and there, um, Doctor Strange doesn't do it out of some hatred of violence; he does it because he just can't defeat this monster. Right, right. He but, can't physically overcome um, it. Yeah. But it's so rare, I think, that we get stories where. The character's presented with a, you have to kill this bad guy, and the character's able to come up with some other choice. Um, well, so it, it, well, go ahead. No, I, 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 I agree with everything you're saying, but I think Harry Potter is actually a really interesting example. Um, I mean, I read book seven when it came out, 
and I haven't reread that since then, and I only saw the films that were based on it, kind of. But I thought that one of the most interesting things was that at the beginning of book seven, they, like, know which one of the fake Harrys or whatever is Harry because Mm -hmm. of the spell that he uses. Right. Right? Because that's, like, what he does, right? He, like, disarms. Yeah, it's a disarming spell. It's not a spell to kill. Yeah, right, and that's what he spell. does yeah. at the end, right? Mm-hmm. At the at the end, he he uses that, so he's not necessarily trying to kill Voldemort, right? He's he disarms him. He's trying to take away his power, which is actually, and I don't remember how it actually ended up ending. Maybe he like mm-hmm. blew up or whatever, but like, <laughs> um, but I do remember in the movie, I felt like they didn't play up that angle, and I thought that angle was very you know, clever and interesting and, and kind of appropriate for, like, a kid's book that isn't totally a kid's book, but that yeah. is, like, yeah, you know, there are other ways. And obviously, in the real world, there isn't... You're not necessarily always going to find, like, option three, right? Right. Um, but the point, I think, is is that there's always value in looking for it for and sure. that if you can take someone who's got a lot of power and they're abusing that power to hurt other people and you can take that power away from them, then they're not going to be hurting people anymore you don't have to kill them right right well, um and, and so with that tell me more about um it, it sounds like ang's vegetarianism flows a lot from the rest of his character you know it's not just mm-hmm. like this weird quirk i mean you guys yeah. briefly mentioned his pacifism obviously tell me a little bit more about other parts of his character and like and how he sort of lives out these ideals throughout the show well and a lot of this actually you could see in in how ang chooses to fight um and one of the things i love about this is that they they um made Aang, well, they made Aang an airbender and they made airbending based on uh, Pac-Man, which is one of the internal styles and it's it's one that is um, there, and, and I don't usually like using these these terms because I feel they're overly simplistic for for um, making distinctions, but it's one of the softer forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you're talking about... Now, when you say forms, where, you need forms of martial art? Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, so you have... You, so generally speaking, you, you can uh, create this arbitrary distinction in martial arts between ones where um, the objective is to use your your strength, your force, to strike another person in some way and to optimize that in, in mechanically uh, put yourself in a position to, to maximize those efforts. And then there are the ones that are, are more about taking advantage of other people's energy and using it against them. Uh, tai Chi is the one that most people know about that, that operates on this principle and is the one that does that the most often. Uh, Pakwa does a lot of this, uh, of this sort of re-angling um, to, to do that same kind of thing uh, where somebody's, somebody is, is coming at you, striking at you. And hopefully I'm explaining this well, it's much more easy if I can show, uh, but <laughs> obviously the audio media is limited in what yeah. I can show people visually. Uh, go and look up uh, one. Uh, all you need to do is type PA space, QUA in YouTube and you will find a video of people doing this. Um, but it's very fluid and, and one of the things it does is it, it redirects, mm. right? Anybody who's trying to attack you, you, you redirect them. Um, you redirect that energy. And when Aang is having confrontations with people, most of what he does is that. He very rarely actually strikes directly at somebody. Yeah. Um, most of what he's doing is to push them, push what they're doing to the side, deflect what they're doing toward him. And, and a lot of the time while he's doing that, while he's fighting them, 
he's trying to reason with them. Even people who have come at him time and time again and proven that they're just going to, like when he's fighting Zhao, proven that they're just yeah. going to doggedly pursue and try to do him harm. And he's still like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight you. And I just, yeah. Obviously, I'm very much in love with this character and and his portrayal as the main hero for this story because it is a story about people fighting each other constantly. Right. Uh, we have this world right. where magic is the, the magical system is martial arts based and people conflict with each other via these, these martial arts styles. So they, they fight, you know, it's physical. Yeah. And to have the main protagonist for a story involving trying to put a stop to a harmful war in this world, to have that main character be constantly trying to defuse and avoid fights and mm. stop fights and understand the people that he's that that are conflicting against him that are in conflict with him is yeah, like, go on oh just like his his physical his style of fighting physically reflects his approach to the greater conflict basically. yes yes exactly yeah and that I, I think that sounds fascinating because i know that's something we've talked about um that a lot of the other heroes we watch that they don't have that, you know, that like Captain America will give this impassioned speech about, you know, the, 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 the things we have to fight against. And then he winds up, you know, it, it's never shown that they're dead, but slaughtering all these Hydra agents or whatever it is, right, right. Um, who are obviously pretty bad people. Um, yeah. But, but that, that seems like such an interesting way of, uh, so often we see that sort of conflict between the values you're fighting for and the way you're fighting for them. Um, mm-hmm. It, is it fair like, to say Ang, Ang is sort of at the exact op- – is it the f- furthest opposite end from the Punisher in terms of like – <laughs> like, I'm just seeing I, those two on the exact extremes of the continuum. I would say that. <laughs> I think that's a fair statement. Like like if you look at Daredevil and Punisher, right? Uh-huh. Daredevil's like, I won't kill people. And Punisher's like, I'm going to kill people. Right. And Daredevil's like, well, I won't kill people, but I'm going to just beat them over the head with a lead pipe. And like, I don't know, maybe they'll die, but they probably won't. <laughs> This is a comic right. book, right? I'm going to throw them over a staircase and, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, <laughs> whereas, like, you know, Aang is like, no, I mean, maybe he's going to do something. Somebody's going to run headfirst into a wall, right? Or mm-hmm. they're going to fall off a ship or whatever. But um, he, his fighting style is uh, more diametrically opposed to the Punisher. Whereas, you know, Daredevil is more like... Um, kind of doing the same thing but trying to like just do it like just a notch below so it's not lethal yeah like daredevil batman so many arrows so many of these heroes seem to have an attitude of i hate that i have to get my hands dirty but to fight this terrible stuff i've got to do terrible stuff and it sounds right. like ang doesn't even do that ang is just like nope i don't want to get my hands dirty while fighting this te- this stuff so i'm gonna stick true to my values yeah and i wouldn't say literally never like there are times when he does things and I think probably people die, mm-hmm. you know, but he's not like, I'm going to kill those people. And when he does that, it's, he's in this avatar state and it's kind of like unclear how much he is him and yada, yada, yada. Like the end of season one is what I'm referring to. Right. We, we, we have actually talked for a long time about the character of Aang, uh, but we did want to talk about a few other things. And I think it might be time to move on. Yeah. yeah I, let's talk about. I, I, if I can. Oh, because yeah, I actually yeah. I wanted as a kind of a transition is to say, like, it sounds great that he does this, but what about his friends? Like, so maybe even just start with um, the character of Toph, but in, like, did the other characters mirror his fighting style? Or did some of the other characters like, like Toph, I know you want to talk about, have, have different fighting styles? A little different. 
<laughs> just, just a little bit. A little bit. I'll, I'll let Jacob uh, explain it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so Toph, uh, yeah, Toph is is um, based off of based off of Mantis style, and uh, that has to do. Interestingly, there are there are similarities you could draw uh, because there's a lot of the same kinds of of limb trapping movements. Uh, so, so things where uh, you would be trapping somebody's arm as it came in uh, and then and then making uh, a strike. But uh, Toph's a little more direct. Uh, Toph's very much in your face. Um, and it actually comes up in, in a couple of the episodes that these two characters' personalities are in one major way diametrically opposed. Um, Aang is, I'm going to move with things. I'm going to move out of the way. I'm going to... I'm going to move you out of the way, uh, and I'm not going to confront you head on. And Toph is all like, I'm the rock. Mm-hmm. I don't move, you move. Right? And it's it's a very, a very different way of approaching life. And her personality, again, reflects this. Uh, now, Toph, Toph is the earthbender, right? Correct. Toph, Toph is Aang's earthbending teacher. So for, for those who are not familiar with the trappings of the show... There are four elemental styles of bending, uh, air, earth, fire, and water. And the avatar, uh, which, which Aang is, there's one avatar, um, and it, the, the avatar-ness is reincarnated into new iterations following a particular cycle of, of a particular kind of bender. Uh, air, earth, fire, water, or excuse me. Yes, that's right. Water, earth, fire, air is the cycle, yes. So... Um, in in Toph's case, she's just an earthbender. In in Ang's case, he gets to learn and can learn all forms of bending. He can use all forms of bending. So he picks up teachers along the way. Toph is Ang's earthbending teacher. Um, it doesn't work out very well in the <laughs> beginning because of this. Because the way that she works is in that very sort of rigid, I am the immovable object I, you know, you're not going to move me. I'm the, the blob is a bad analogy, but it's a good analogy for anybody who knows Marvel. Um, where, you know, doesn't have to do anything. You, you can't do anything to him. Right. Um, and they are so, the diametrically opposed elements, too. It's like right, earth correct. and air, right? Right. So the, the character's personalities really go kind of with their bending. Mm. Correct. Correct. Um, and in a lot of ways, uh, what what makes Toph interesting is that even though she is she is this very stubborn, uh, in a lot of ways very passionate, um, and and uh, how else do I want to put this? Uh, forceful, I guess it's fair to say. Um, she's not a bully. I would say she's not I, like. No. She's not abusing people constantly. Okay, maybe with her words. She likes to use her sure. words. Um, because <laughs> uh, she's also like sarcastic and yeah. uh, and a joker. And God, I love Toph so much. Uh, she's she so um, but so even even in that, uh, she's forceful in a way that's still not abusive. Uh, so I want to make sure that that's clear because this is still a character we're, we're saying is a hero and is allied with the heroes. And that's um, a very important distinction, like the ability to use force without it being an oppressive, bullying kind of way. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, she's, in a lot of ways, her mentoring style 
mirror stick. Uh, but uh, she she differs in many ways from the character of Stick in that she's not quite as as much of a problem. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like Toph is a child, Aang is a child, and you have this one kid teaching the other kid, you know, a, a new bending style. And but they're both masters of their own styles, right? right. Whereas Stick, you have this older master of whatever fighting some war you know, training this kid and telling him he has to be in this war, basically. Right. And training other kids, right? And so in terms of, like, power dynamics, like, Toph can be sarcastic to the other characters. Toph can be um, very exacting as a master of bending and a teacher without having kind of a lot of the problematic uh, power dynamics that you sometimes get in the martial arts and you certainly get with stick, I'd say. Right. Uh, and what, that's another thing that comes up when she's training Aang is that Toph's not big on positive reinforcement. Uh, <laughs> that's that's not really her bag, right? Yeah. She's she's more than willing to tell Aang everything he's doing wrong. Uh, at one point, she's trying to you know get Aang to sink down into into his stance, you know, try to get him rooted, get him centered, mm-hmm. and she doesn't even look, and she says lower, and he goes, "You haven't even looked." Whatever, I know. <laughs> uh, of course, that doesn't. Uh, that that's right, a looking little bit. Might not. Yeah. That's a little bit funny, uh, <laughs> in a way, <laughs> because Toph does share something in common with Stick, and it's something I want to spend a little bit of time on. In that, uh, Toph is blind. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, Paul, actually, I've, I've spoken for a long time. Go into go into Toph's blindness for us, please. Sure. So you know, I think. So her blindness is an integral part of her character, right? Like, she's, I think she's grown up blind, right? Mm-hmm. She, she was always blind. Um, blind, yeah. But she, and she lives, you know, she has these very rich parents. And so she's brought up blind and, like, sheltered. And, uh-huh. like, her parents feel like she can't take care of herself, you know, partially because she's blind. Um, and maybe partially because she's a girl and partially because she's a kid and et cetera, et cetera. But... Um, you know, she kind of goes off and she learns earthbending and becomes like, spoiler alert, the greatest earthbender really, um, as far as I can recall in, um, in, in, you know, in that series. And it's, I, I feel like they, they handle her, her blindness very well. It's similarly to how they handle Aang being a vegetarian in that it's an integral part of her character, but it's not the defining aspect of her character, right? Like, you wouldn't mm-hmm. be like, tough, you know, the blind one. You'd be like, no, the baddest earthbender who invented metal bending, right? Right. Um, right. But that doesn't mean that, like, her being blind is just this kind of, like, random um, characteristic that doesn't really relate to any of her character and that, that um, her personality, you know, that didn't develop partially, you know, through her experiences. Right. It's one integrated part of a larger character, it sounds like. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and there's, me, go ahead, Jacob. And then I have so, a question. So there's, yeah, yeah. So, so there's something uh, with Toph, and we were just talking about characters from Daredevil, so I want to draw this very firm contrast with Daredevil mm. in that, so Toph and Daredevil are both characters that are blind. Matt Murdock is blind. Toph is blind. Yeah. Um, and in in a lot of ways, their their unique powers give them the ability to observe the world, so that it's not as much of a hindrance as it would normally be. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think uh, 
Avatar The Last Airbender does a much better job with in treating a character with this, where they, they have a workaround, right? Uh, right. They, have a, they have a workaround for her disability in that she can see through her feet. She detects vibrations in the ground and up into other people, and so from there uh, abstracts what's going on around her. Mm. Um, but when someone throws something at her, mm -hmm. she has no idea. She can't see it, doesn't know. It's like she, she can try to hear it, yeah. right? But it's not like Daredevil where he gets a whole complete three-dimensional map and basically like his handicap isn't a handicap. Yeah, right? she doesn't have sonar. Right. Or one, uh, there's one scene, right, she doesn't have sonar. There's one scene where she's in the desert. Uh, and she makes it a point to, to point out to characters that, like, this is making everything seem really fuzzy. She's having a hard time identifying details. Oh, because the ground is and so... It, exactly. Yes, because the ground is, is a bunch of fine particles, and it doesn't create this nice pattern for her yeah. uh, when, when she's moving around with, with, her, with her bare feet. And so... Also, they... Oh, I was just going to say, like, they spend a lot of time flying around in a, on top of a sky bison. Uh -huh. So, like, during all that time, she can't, you know, quote unquote, see with her yep. earthbending with her feet. So if they get attacked and they're up there, it's like that she doesn't the, the workaround doesn't basically the kind of the workaround that she has doesn't apply nearly as often as it does for Daredevil. For Daredevil. And that, to me, that is so important. And I, I admit that's one more reason why I'm now even more excited to try and watch the show. Um, because – and I've talked before on this, but I think it's worth saying again. For me as a person who is disabled, um, I'm often very frustrated with how you, you get characters like Daredevil where on the one hand we're told that they're disabled, but they then have either because of a superpower or a technology so much of an ability to undo their disability and ignore their disability that it means that I don't relate to that character. I don't look right. at that character and say, that's a character who shares my experience and who I, I see myself on the screen in them. Um, mm -hmm. And I get, you know, for a story about martial artists, you want, you, you want people to have some magical abilities like that, and, and that's great. And, but that, sound, that, that workaround seems like such a great way of making the character still have, you know, incredible powers and incredible abilities that no one else has but still have to deal with the kind of things that people with disabilities have to deal with and have to have those kind of things where, you know, the, the one little, you know, you're in the desert, you would never think like that that's the place where this would affect you, but it would. That, right. That's often the life of a person with disability is having to, to navigate those things. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to hear about a character who does that because frankly, in a superhero world, I can think of very few other examples you have. There's a great scene involving Toph where we're, her disability is actually, in some ways, an advantage. Mm. Uh, she meets up with with Uncle Iroh, uh, oh, yeah. with the with uh, Zuko, Prince Zuko's uncle. We talked about Prince Zuko a bit earlier. So the, the wizened old uh, character that was following Zuko's around, who's really right. his mentor. Who, who's the next um, one we're going to talk about? I definitely want to talk about right. them. But go she on. She gets frustrated with her. At one point, Toph gets frustrated with the rest of of the people she's traveling with. She goes off on her own. Um, meets up with with this guy doesn't know anything about who he is, even though there have been like wanted posters of these people around because the fire nations now after them as renegades, uh, doesn't know who he is, just knows that he's, he's this guy who came, who talked with her, who helped her through her problem that she was having with her friends and gave her some good advice. And so when they meet up with, uh, when they meet up with him later, she can see quote unquote, see through the door that, Oh, I know this guy. We're yeah. in good hands. This guy's going to be great. 
and they all see him and this is somebody who they've you know seen as an as an enemy for this entire time mm. but because she was able to approach this person with with a completely blank slate she was able to to connect with him in a way that the other characters weren't and that creates this bridge for our protagonists to link up with these people who as it turns out aren't monsters or actually reasonable right. people who want to change the world and make it better just like they do well and that's a great i think that's a great example of where like yeah some, I, I know one thing we often talk about in the disability community is that it, it, it's about I, I i hate the term differently abled because i just right. I think I was, it sounds yeah. ridiculous but i like the concept of of trying to say like that 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 the differences in humanity are important and it's you know because you know people who experience the world you know i know a lot of people in the deaf community won't even talk about themselves as being disabled. They think of it as a right. difference and a very important yeah. part of human diversity and, and that there's, they're no better or worse uh, and certainly not disabled. Um, right. So I'm really glad for that, but I'm also really glad that you brought up the, these characters of, of Uncle Oroa and, and the Fire Nation because uh, it's a great transition to the third topic I know we want to talk about, which is this idea of adversaries. Um, I want to start just with Iroa especially because uh, – and again, here I'm the person who hasn't seen very much of it. I know very little – but Iroa is a character I know quite – or at least I recognize immediately um, in probably the way I would only recognize uh, the water bison, the, the sky bison. Um, right. It's a pretty recognizable character. Um, but I <laughs> Papa's know, great. I, I, know, yes. I, I know of Iroa because I've seen so many memes about right. you know, whatever you're doing, don't worry. Uncle Iroa still loves you or still, still approves or he would encourage it's, you. It's... And it's still Iro. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. We're just we're going to try to stop you from Iroa. <laughs> one more time. I was going to rage quit the podcast. Okay, like, no. Uncle Iro. Uncle Iro. Yeah. Uncle um, Iro. But, but, but you're point... familiar with the character, even though you yes. haven't really heard his name, right? Because right, I've mean, seen the written memes. Yeah. But I yeah. saw all of these characters about how he is this incredibly benevolent, supportive person, and all you want is approval. I was kind of amazed that when we were talking to hear that he was actually part of the Fire Nation, who I thought right. was so the bad guys. And so, yeah. so let's let's talk about that character. Oh, Iroh? Oh man. Oh. Iroh's <laughs> got a very rich story. Um yeah. so Iroh was a a great general for the Fire Nation. Uh he laid siege to the capital of the Earth Kingdom. It's the thing he's most known for, the siege of Bossing Se, uh capital of the Earth Kingdom. Uh, which Bossing Se is the city that's surrounded by this this enormous uh, up till this point and past this point even impenetrable wall, um, and he's you know trying to trying to get through, uh, and has had many successes beforehand. Was the Fire Nation's greatest general, and there's a turning point moment for his character uh, throughout this. You know, he, at this point he's still a true believer in the cause of let's unite the world under one banner. Uh, and then we'll all be happy because we won't have any conflicts. There will be one nation, etc. Um, and then he gets noticed that his son has died in the line of duty. And it just completely devastates him. He loses, he basically loses the will to fight. He comes home failing to uh, complete his siege of Bossing Say and is snubbed by uh, the Fire Lord is snubbed by the nation is, oh, he didn't get it done. He's a quitter. He didn't have the stomach for the for the prolonged conflict. So anyway, Iroh is, is sort of this uh, cast out in a way. Um, and so he's sent to he's sent with Zuko, who is uh, banished by his father for effectively disrespecting uh, Zuko's disrespects. Uh, his father during a war meeting at one point. Yeah, uh, he like, asked the question. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like we're not saying disrespect. He's like, "Dad, you dumb," and like flips the table and walks right, out. Right, and right. He just 
he asks a perfectly legitimate question of one of the other generals at the meeting. But because of a particular aspect of their culture, it by by stepping out of line during that meeting, who he offended was the person holding the meeting, who was his father. So he had to fight his father in, in this like kind of barbaric duel yeah. that they have set up called a Nagnikai. Mm. Um, Agnikai, excuse me, uh, which is a, a firebending duel. And he refuses to do it, and is or he doesn't want to fight his dad. His dad actually scars him, like yeah, actually, like not not like scars him emotionally, like burns his face. So he's wow. got a scar on his face for the rest of his life now. And then banishes him and says, "You can come back home when you've captured the Avatar," mm. <laughs> which is seen as like this impossible quest, right? right? Because the Avatar hadn't been seen in like a hundred years, yeah. right? Right. Uh, so so Iroh is sent off with Zuko. So they're both effectively exiles for for different yeah. reasons. One is seen as, one is seen as a failure and one is seen as an as an embarrassment. It, really, they're both seen as failures and embarrassment. So they have yeah. that in common. Yeah. Um, and Iroh is trying to mentor Zuko because one of the things he's come to realize over his years is that this whole Fire Nation conquering the world idea is not good. This whole war thing's kind of not OK. And he's joined the secret society called the White Lotus hmm. that's trying to put an end to these conflicts and, and embrace the ideas that the Avatar is not the enemy, among other things, that, that the Avatar is not bad, that um, we the world needs balance, that the different cultures of the world need to be allowed to thrive, need to be respected and, and be independent. Um, and so he's slowly trying to work Zuko away from the the kind of brainwashing upbringing he had being the son of the leader of this nation that's engaging in this military conflict. Um, and so it's a very slow progression for the character of Iroh. He's, he's very complex. There's a, there's, there's a lot going on. I've only kind of stretched the surface yeah. of his character. Yeah, um, he, I'd say that Iroh is a character who's pretty much fully formed before we the series starts mm. but whose depth is kind of revealed to us throughout the course of the series mm -hmm. and while Zuko is a character who is fairly simple at the beginning of the series and he acquires depth through experience throughout the series uh-huh you know yeah. in no, a lot I... of ways there's a, there's a parallel with Zuko and Aang mm -hmm. in that they're both on a journey of self-discovery yeah. Only one of them realizes they're on a journey of self-discovery right. immediately, and the other one kind of twigs to it about halfway through. The yeah. moment where Zuko confronts his father uh, during the uh, Day of Black Sun is oh, yeah. one of the best scenes in the entire show, because we've just painted this picture of, of a father who did a very horrific thing. That is not a one-off incident. His father right. is very abusive. He is not right. a good dad. Yeah, I want to make yeah. that very clear. <laughs> he wants to conquer the world, and, and right. he's right. like, "I'm yeah, glad but... that my dad or granddad like killed all the other Airbenders." Right. You know, like, and he's, and he's not a and great person. And and he values uh, of the of his two children. One is somebody who's like generally conflicted and wants to do the right thing, and the other is actually a psychopath. And he values right. the mm -hmm. psychopath more. Yeah, because she's like him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so let me ask this. It's, I mean, obviously it sounds like the father is just straight-up villain antagonist. Uh, our, for Uncle Iroh and Zuko, you know, the way the story is set up, you'd think that they would be at least villains or at least antagonists. It, are, they portrayed, are they portrayed just as, as other protagonists who just happen to be on the other side of this conflict? How, how, how do they fall in terms of these hero-villain 
antagonist protagonist questions that we're often discussing on the show. Um, so, yeah. go on, Paul. Oh, I just say that, like, in season one, they're the antagonists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end of the season, I mean, mostly Zuko is, like, the primary antagonist for the most part in yep. season one. And there's a little bit of kind of doubt introduced there. And then season two is where that kind of really comes into question. Mm. And then season three is where he actually becomes a um, a legitimate protagonist. Right. Zuko right. is Aang's firebending teacher in the end. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Although, so yeah. he goes from hunting down the Avatar with the intent to capture him to restore his honor so he can rejoin his psychopathic family mm-hmm. um, to joining with the Avatar against the Fire Nation uh, in, in teaching Aang about how to, how to, teaching Aang his unique martial art, right? Yeah. Well, and that seems like such a powerful journey um, be, because of this, you know, I mean, so often I think we're frustrated by the breakdown of the world into, you know, good guys and bad guys, and, you know, heroes and villains. And, and it seems like that must be such a rich story where you really have the blurring of the line between antagonist and protagonist. Right. And that's actually a recurring theme in the show. And mm-hmm. we talked about this when we talked about Aang, mm-hmm. where Aang likes to understand people yeah. uh, as a means of conflict, conflict resolution. And we find time and time again that they have adversaries, people who are initially introduced as ad- adversaries, who become their allies. Uh, Interesting. Who end up becoming their friends or becoming people that, that help them along the way instead. Because there isn't this this dichotomy of they're the bad guys, we're the good guys. And they made a very satisfying thump when they hit the floor. Right. To <laughs> make a Babylon great, 5. Reference. Yeah, great quote from Babylon 5. But yeah, no, I, I, I hear that because I think that that's that – there is – you know, we, we've talked a lot about how it, it's frustrating when, when shows portray people as just so clearly bad that you and the audience just get to enjoy any terrible thing that's done to them because they're so clearly bad. Um, right. And I, I love this idea of – where the, the primary means of resolving conflict is by, try, is by trying to understand it and trying to, to, to bridge the gaps um, and, and see people from their own perspectives. Let, uh, let, let, let figure out what is their own story that they want to tell and, ha- and how do we relate to that? Uh, Paul, I know there's, like I said, this is a recurring theme. Do you, can you think of any other, uh, because this happens a lot, can you think of any other examples or characters that, that, uh, that strike you as a very powerful story that start as adversaries for our protagonists and end up and end up becoming their allies in some way in in the last airbender yeah in the last airbender um i mean there's there's the swamp benders right who they're um at odds with and then it's like oh you're water benders right like Mm. like hey and you know help us fight the fire nation basically like um I, i mean even in the in the like first couple episodes it's like Aang is viewed as not as an antagonist to the water tribe, but as like a liar, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then they kind of work that out. But, um, you know, he, where he is just like, yeah, okay. You know, the fire nation wants me to go with them. I'll just go with them. You know? Right. Like, <laughs> like right. they're going to destroy this village. Like, no, don't destroy the village. I'll go with you. You know? Um, and uh, obviously Jet and his gang, right? Right, um, his, his gang of freedom fighters, yes. Yeah, like, they're basically 
I guess they're like allies who turn out to be antagonists who then become allies, allies again. again. Yeah. <laughs> they're, so they're terrorists, right? When right. we first meet yeah. them, they're straight up terrorists. I, I think freedom fighters is the... <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the word they use, but right, I don't right. like to mince words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they just want to kill firebenders, basically. Right. They're like, yep. you know, we're just going to go kill, you know, attack the firebending people. And, and a, you know, I mean, the Fire Nation is made up of people. Right. right. It's it's like it's not all ships and um, it's not uh, just the military know, soldiers. Right. Exactly. And all we really see in the first couple seasons of the Fire Nation is mostly just the military. But in season three, that's, you know, book three fire. Basically, that's where Aang's going to learn firebending. But it's also where they go into the fire nation. Right. Mm, right. To go um, try to accomplish, you know, try to try to bring it down basically and to find a teacher and to find a teacher for Aang exactly because he wants to be a fully realized avatar right who has control over all four elements but like in order to find a firing bending teacher you obviously need to find a firebender who's willing to teach it to you turns out they only come from one place really Uh, right and so like that that in particular uh because up until that point we'd seen a couple of fire of uh, Fire Nation people with faces, right? A couple of members of the mm-hmm. Fire Nation who who yeah. had, had personalities, but they do have this kind of stormtrooper esque uniform, yeah. where they've got like the skull on their mask and, yeah, and all of yeah. that business. They wear scary so, helmets. <laughs> so for the first two seasons, there's that whole like demonization uh, aspect where you can or or, or dehumanizing, yeah, dehumanizing, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, of of the Fire Nation people. And then in season three, they start walking around and seeing characters who aren't Aang get their eyes opened a bit and be all like, oh, yeah, wait, there's like normal everyday people in the Fire Nation, too. And some of them aren't even a big fan of the war, but they can't talk about it because there's a suppressive government. And it's yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. There's like kids in school who just yep. want to dance, but like right. their but government doesn't let them dance. Like, you know, well, I think that that is such a great storytelling technique because, you know, I, I, we've talked about this before, but there are times when. When the camera only shows us the hero's view of the of the other side, you know that that's all we're getting is in the audience, and so it, all, right. if all we ever see, you know, we're talk Paul and I have been talking about this offline in terms of the um the, the Clone Wars show, you know, we never see yeah. the people who live in the in the Separatist world, or even later in Star Wars, just the the everyday, you know, why does someone join the the Empire, you know, or join yeah, like the, who who is the Empire, like right. what, <laughs> what, what what are they doing? We we never get to see that, and our, and. And there's never any distinction drawn between what the heroes see and what the what the the audience sees. And I think it's such a great storytelling technique and a, 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 such a great way of twisting the ethical perspective when when the, the camera allows us to sort of draw back and, to, and and not only the heroes but we in the audience get to see beyond the initial stereotype we had of oh they're all you know stormtroopers or they're all you know fascists with with skulls on their helmets or what, what you guys are talking about. Yeah. And as a kids show, like which I wouldn't necessarily call it a kids show, but definitely you, you're not wrong to call it that. You know, <laughs> like right. it, it's yes, kids can watch this show. Right, it exactly. It's a show entirely for kids. Right, and it was created and marketed in a way to attract an audience of kids. Right, um, mm-hmm. but I think also deliberately so that their parents would probably want to watch it with them, or right. um, people in their twenties or thirties would enjoy it. But like <laughs> as as a show that's supposed to appeal to kids, that has to appeal to kids. Um, I think it kind of – I think it's smart to show it, you know, in the beginning to make it feel a little simple, right? Right. A little like good and bad, good and evil, whatever. Um, 
and then to show that like you can ha you can start with that perception and then you can learn that there's a more complicated truth be you know beyond that yeah and I think it's a lot easier than being like, all right, everything's complicated right from the beginning. You know, in a show like The Wire, maybe that makes sense to present right. it as complicated from episode one, right? But like, for for a show that you really want to be able to bring kids in, and you know, I, I, another thing is like, it's three seasons, right? So when it's produced, I don't think those seasons come out that quickly. I'm not sure whether they were a full year apart or whatever, but like a lot of things like, like with the Harry Potter books and like a lot of series for kids. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's important to remember that if they're view, if they're read when the books come out, if the movies are seen when the movies come out or the TV series is watched when each season comes out, you know, the kid watching season three is two years older than the kid watching season one. No, and I think that's a great point. And actually, I was, I was thinking of Harry Potter as you said that. It's kind of funny we keep going back to it because, yeah, I mean, in, in, book, one, in, book, one, yeah, in book one of Harry Potter, the world is incredibly simplistic. And by book right. seven, you know, I, I wish the Slytherins had been given a little bit more depth. <laughs> but, yeah. 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 Other yes. than that, it is a much more complicated world. And it, I, I think it, it very much mirrors like, you know, if a 10-year-old read book one and then a 17-year-old read book seven, they would, you know, that, that sort of journey. Right, um, yeah. And it's funny because also I don't know if either of you have watched it. I, I have not gotten into it much, but I have a lot of friends who rave about the show Steven Universe. Um, oh, I haven't, but I, I, I've heard similar yeah, gushings. It seems very much in the same kind of a view of, you know, the first half season, the first season is kind of simplistic and childlike. Um, but in later seasons, they're getting into some incredibly complicated issues of gender mm -hmm. and sexuality and identity and um, violence and vengeance and, and, and punishment. Um really complicated stuff. And I, I think you're right that by, by starting people on a simple level, you get to kind of build the ethical questions block by block and get into more and more complicated things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen any Steven Universe, but it, it's that same kind of idea. And I think what's, what's the most fascinating about this, uh, specifically with the, with the Fire Nation reveal, quote unquote, but also right. other parts of the series, is that um, we, we have two perspective characters, really. Uh, they don't always seem that way, but Katara and Sokka, in a lot yeah. of ways, are our perspective characters. We we follow them through the show. We sort of are seeing the world in a, in a lot of ways through their eyes. Sometimes we see it through Zuko's eyes, or or like one and a half eyes, or <laughs> or Toph's lack of eyes. Uh, <laughs> although she does have eyes, they just don't work the same way. Um, but like most of the time, it's it's Sokka and Katara that we're that we're we're seeing this. Their understanding of the world evolves we evolve with them mm -hmm. so it's it's sort of like the audience is taken for that journey as these characters are themselves growing up maturing and understanding their place in the world and how their world works and yeah. how they don't have this simple world of good and evil it is complex it is com complicated and it's 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 it makes a lot of sense for them and for us to kind of start off seeing that simple uh viewpoint because you know, it's like they're from the Southern Water Tribe, right? They live in the South Pole, and I'm pretty sure they never really ventured beyond their area, right? Mm. And it's not like this cosmopolitan South Pole tribe, whatever. It's like it's like a village, basically. And maybe there's some more villages that we don't see. I'm not sure, but I think it's like pretty small, right? Um, and 
I mean, I think they may have been decimated by the by the Fire Nation. I mean, we know that Katara's mom was killed by the Fire Nation, so she has this very much like they killed my mom. Right. You know, they're the bad guys, and like that's of course that's the perspective she has, right? And of course, yep. they have this perspective of like, well, all we really know is the South Pole, and then they meet Aang, and he talks about some stuff, and they're like, okay, well, that's not how the world is. But, like, they haven't really seen the world that much. So then when they go out on the journey with him, like, he is sort of re-experiencing the world. He already uh-huh. has this, right, this framework. Um, since he saw the world as it was, which is very different than the world um, is when the series takes place. But he's, like, re-experiencing it. But they really are, I do feel like, the viewpoint characters. I, I often refer to characters like that as sort of, like, the audience avatars, you know? Yes. Um where, you know, it's, and I mean, Katara narrates the intro, right? Yep. So, like, it's, I'd say there's, you know, Aang is the title character, but she's definitely, out of all the characters, the most uh, V perspective character, really. Well, right. And that's really important because, and this was actually kind of the question I went, oh, and we've been going on for a while, so I want to kind of wrap mm-hmm. up, but the kind of last question I wanted to ask, which I, I think you guys have already started to get to, um, but to kind of make it even clearer, is obviously it is Aang's story, and Aang is kind of the, the titular hero. Um, but but when we were talking before about how like Toph has a very different perspective, and some of the other you know members of Aang's crew have different perspectives, yeah. is it fair to is is that portrayed as like Aang has to be right in the end, or is it is it is it portrayed as that there there could be different ways to see in the world, and none of them has to be right? I mean, how, how is those sort of conflicts among Aang's Aang's allies and colleagues resolved in that way, or is it not resolved? Well. They they learn from each other. Yeah, it's beautiful. Now, and I'm I'm dead serious about this. That there sometimes Aang's not completely right. Sometimes yeah. Aang has to grow because he's he's the he's very young, right? right. And that comes along. Uh, so one of the things that uh, that right away. So so Katara, Katara is the most mature character in the group. Yeah. In uh, the mentally sort of generic way that we use the word mature. Right, right, right. I'm, I'm yeah. generally saying that is that she is responsible. Yes, right? she's by far she's, the responsible one. <laughs> she's responsible. She's on task. She's organized. Yeah. She is uh, deliberate and and wants to make sure that uh, we're we're making good choices with our lives. Right. right. Um, <laughs> there's there are moments. Uh, so yeah. uh, Katara is one of my favorite characters uh, because. Uh, a very good, strong female character, which the show is again has in abundance. Yeah. Um, which another great thing about it is it's a show aimed for kids, and it's not like you know the men are doing all the fighting and the women are doing all the fighting, but they're not as good as the men. It's, right. That's not really how it is. No. Um, one of the scariest villains in in the show, one of the most powerful villains. I don't think Fire Lord Ozai is, is actually as as uh, frightening as as Azula is. Yeah, um, yeah, Zuko's sister. Yes, Zuko's yeah. sister is really powerful and yeah. like and terrifying uh, in a lot of ways, and not in the not in the you know I I don't know how to identify the trope not the not the crazy woman it's not that because she's a woman right, she's terrifying right. she's terrifying because she's very powerful and kind of not all like she doesn't think like we do and it's very clear right. she doesn't think like we do or, or think of people like we do right um, oh that sounds great. And but, so, so needed because it's not we don't get that kind of story very often, right? But but anyway, so the the characters when they're at conflict with each other, when they're at odds with each other, sometimes they they fight you know verbally, uh, and, and sometimes they come away with a, with a better understanding of each other, 
Uh, but it's never a case where like one person is held as the paragon of of being right. 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 It's not like everyone it's not one of those situations where everyone ends up apologizing to Aang at the end of the episode. Right. right. Uh, which that's such a such a terrible trope and I hate it. Yeah. But yeah, it's not like that. Right. We're not presented with a situation where there's one person who is our compass for everything that is correct. And they're never wrong. Um, Aang, you know, we, we made a big noise about how we love his outlook on the world. We love uh, how he's a pacifist, how he tries to understand people. Um, but Aang is not perfect. No. And there are plenty of episodes that, that show you that, you know, sometimes Aang doesn't make good choices mm-hmm. um, and has to live with those and has to learn from his compatriots who have a better idea about how to approach things and, and needs to sometimes accept that their idea about what to do is, is right. Um, and I mean, the whole learning from each other, like he, he goes around eventually with three people who taught him martial arts Yes. Right. So he's literally learning from these people. And Sokka, he learns from as well. Uh, the Xander character for, for all the Buffy fans. <laughs> okay. Um, so true. So true. So- Sokka's the best Xander. Uh, uh-huh. So not to not to deep dive too much on Sokka, yeah. but uh, there there is this trope of the the unpowered character yeah. in these in these forms of fiction where people have some kind of magic or gifts or what have you. And the other unpowered characters are there effectively only for comic relief. Right. Yeah. Um, and Sokka is, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of jokes at Sokka's expense, some of which Sokka creates for himself. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he is also a very key part of their team, and he does things that none of the other characters do. One of the things he's big in is he, he starts to understand technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there there are some things, some mechanisms, some machines that they come across uh, that he start that he gets fascinating and he starts diving into that direction. So even though there's a lot of ha Saka, what a dummy, he's actually not. He's also intelligent. He's just you know doesn't have fancy magic martial arts technique. Right. right. He comes up with strategies and yep. like and understands technology. And I mean, there's, there's and an ex- oh go on. Oh, I was gonna say like there's an extent to which like within the context of this world like Sokka's kind of like disabled hmm. you know what I mean like sure right there's... so there's and that that's something they explore in the first season of Korra but we're not going to talk okay. Korra spoilers well, okay. I, 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 like, I was there's... trying to wrap us up because we, we, we're gone yeah. a little bit over time and I think two if not three of us have people waiting to have dinner on us um, so we should try and wrap up um, but, but I really – I think we've gotten into some great issues here. And, and, and uh, Paul, I just want to give you one last chance to see if there's anything else you wanted to add uh, before we wrap up. Um, I guess that feels like a really weird thought to end on. So maybe I want to like say like two sentences about like what I mean. Sure. Um, and how the, you know, the, the word differently abled or the phrase like mm-hmm. always – like I know what you're saying, not um, – not necessarily from personal experience, but just from like the sound of the phrase. Mm -hmm. But like, I also know what you're saying, like people are saying about like the range of human experience. Right. Right. Um, And like Sokka has a different experience of the world than people who can literally bend the elements to their will. Right. And I think there's an extent to which because of that, because he has a different experience, he might, um, feel like technology is more uh 
relevant to him. Like he might connect with it more instead of like a bender who's like, well, why don't I just bend that? You know, right. like a firebender is like, why would I make a tea kettle? I can just heat the tea with my brain, you know, with my hand, with my martial <laughs> with arts. With my brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that makes total sense to me. I think it's something that like, I, I think when I think a lot about some of the great, like, you know, um, superhero team up movies we get, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get characters who have these like incredible godlike powers. Right. And then someone like Hawkeye who can shoot a bow and arrow, you know, or, or, right. Or, uh, or even Harley. just Batman and Superman. You yeah, know? exactly. I mean, and they, they team up. Bat- Batman's superpowers, he's disgustingly wealthy. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, literally can buy whatever. Uh, or right. he's the world's greatest detective. It depends yeah. on the plot line, I think. Right, yeah. right. It depends on whether it's Zack Snyder or... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we did it! We got it! <laughs> I get the Zack Snyder point for today's podcast. All right, that's go. my closing argument. There you go. Okay, well, we, we, we've, we've, we've gotten a lot of great stuff said. We've, we, we've gotten to dig in at Zack Snyder. Um, thank you guys both. I think it was really exciting to have both of you on, um, get all three of us to be talking. Um, and for everybody else who's been listening, um, we've all had our say. What, what do you guys think? Um, what are your thoughts on uh, Last Airbender? Is there, there are questions we didn't get into or questions you disagree with? Um, favorite episodes or stories you have uh, in terms of things that just made you think, made you question ideas? Because um, I think what, what's, what's most important to me and what I hear about this is the way it – it's teaching some really great things about how people see the world, how people, how easy it is to see the world just through the lens of what you've learned or just through the lens of, of good and bad and black and white. Um, uh, and, and that this is really about challenging things. Um, so what are ways in which the show challenged you or what are ways in which the, this podcast uh, challenged you and you disagree with? Um, let us know. You can contact us on Facebook or on Twitter at Superhero Ethics. Um, you can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. Anyway, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Jacob, on behalf of Paul, um, thank you guys all for listening. Please tune in next time and have a great day. Paul, have you um, been doing any more writing you want to uh, let people know about? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>